and the teens can be dismissed. Today we're going to be in John chapter 5. The last time we saw the conclusion of the woman at the well, and today we're going to see the healing at Bethesda, and through it, a transition to understand the four points of Christ's divinity or deity, and five witnesses to that divinity. And I'm going to break this message like I did the last two chapters into two parts. I don't want to rush through it, a lot of information, so it'll be a little bit of a shorter message today. So starting with verse 1, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. This is an unusual healing with the whole angel stirring the water. Uh, It's indigenous or native only to John's gospel. And before I continue, I would like to read an article, a non-Christian source. I purposely picked a non-Christian source, Wikipedia, about the pool of Bethesda. This is going to blow you away, what they say about this. And the really, the best part is the end and the conclusion. And I tell you what, if you ever want to witness to your friends and they're like doubters, I got a whole stack of articles in my office that show that secular archaeology backs up the scripture. For centuries and millennia, oh, that, that never existed. Oh, the Philistines never existed. Pontius Pilate never existed. I can show you a whole bunch of articles that in, in the last um, hundred or so years, these digs have turned up evidence for the proof of the city, people, group, and they don't really want to admit that they were wrong, but they, they just say, hey, you know, this is true. Um, actually, in, when we get further into the gospel towards Jesus' resurrection, the earthquake, seismologists now can go back thousands of years based on the tectonic plates and activity of today and find Activity at the time of Christ when it spoke about the earthquake and the saints came out of the graves. Uh, I can't wait to read that one to you. So this is a lot of fun. I mean, you, you got to do your homework. You got to do your research. Um, today, it's the, we live in the age of prove it to me. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of proof out there. So I'm going to read the article, The Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda is a water in the now Muslim quarter of Jerusalem on the path of the Beth Zeta Valley. The Gospel of John describes such a pool in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. It is associated with healing. Until the 19th century, there was no evidence outside of John's Gospel for the existence of this pool. Therefore, scholars argued, as they often do, that the Gospel was written later, probably by someone without first-hand knowledge of the city of Jerusalem, and that the pool had only a metaphorical rather than historical significance. 
We hear that a lot. Oh, it's subject to interpretation. No, it's not. In the 19th century, archaeologists discovered the remains of a pool fitting the description in John's Gospel. A lot of footnotes with this too. Different books, different research. The name of the pool is said to be derived from the Hebrew language and or Aramaic language, Bethesda, either meaning house of mercy or house of grace. In both Hebrew and Aramaic, the word could also mean shame or disgrace. This dual meaning may have been thought appropriate since the location was seen as a place of disgrace due to the presence of invalids and a place of grace due to the granting of healing. There's a sermon right in the secular article. So I'm going to just go through... I'm not going to read all this, but I'm just going to hit the last paragraph. Conclusion. This archaeological discovery proved beyond a doubt that the description of this pool in the Gospel of John was not the creation of the evangelist. It reflected an accurate and detailed knowledge of the site. The Gospel speaks of A, the name of the pool at Bethesda, B, its location near the Sheep Gate, C, the fact that it had five porticos with rushing water. All these details are corroborated through literary and archaeological evidence affirming the historical accuracy of the Johannine account. Impressive, isn't it? Love it. <laughs> so, I want to break this up into four parts, this healing. The first part is going to start with the actual healing. Bethesda means house of grace, or can mean house of disgrace. This was a place where God took society's disgraceful. Not that he looks at them that way, but that society looked at it. You know, it's a nuisance. And we see that today. Oh, these people, you know, throwaways of society. Look at this. They're, they're ruining the place. And what did God do? He showed them grace. It's a place where he regularly healed those who couldn't heal themselves. Now, you've got to look at this picture. This is really a picture of mankind. Mankind is a bunch of disabled people spiritually hanging around the pool waiting for God to do something. Because guess what? We can't heal ourselves. It's up to God to regenerate the spirit. God is the one who sent his son to die on the cross, that we would receive that cross. And it's amazing. Pool, water, we just spoke about the woman at the well with this life-giving water. So it's a picture of mankind. And we know since sickness and death came as a result of sin and rebellion against God, the truth is we all need to be healed. And God provides that healing. Most and foremost is spiritual healing. And then there's physical healing. There's emotional healing. Something that a lot of people don't want to talk about, but God can do all of those things. This pool also was a point of contact where the sick came to meet God. Much like a church. And I've heard this. There's such a peace that I have when I come here on Sunday morning. Because there's dysfunction in my house. There's arguments. There's this. There's that. But as we start to grow in the Lord, we realize that God can meet us anywhere. Even in that house. Even in that dysfunctional situation. Even if maybe it's too noisy and you go outside and take a walk. He's right there with you on the block. All you need to do is call out to him. When I was praying with my ushers this morning, I said, the first thing I want to say, Lord, is that every time we, we look to you or we call to you, you're there to listen. You know, we live in the age of you try to call a business and you're always getting automated people. How many of you have yelled at the phone and it's a recording? <laughs> All right, they don't care. It's, they're not human. But God, no matter he doesn't have office hours. You can call upon him anytime and he's there to answer your calls and your questions. That's the beautiful thing about God. 
You look at the, the woman who had the flow of blood. She was anemic. It was a hot climate. There was a crowd. She was weak. She couldn't get to Jesus. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made well. I just need to touch anything associated with him. Boom. Immediately, she was made well. God met this woman where she was at. It was the point of contact. Man, I love that about, that, about our God. And when we pray for our troops, God can meet our troops on the battlefield. And God can meet you at the battlefield of your lives. Be encouraged this morning about that. Verse 6, Jesus says, do you want to be made well or whole? You may say, well, what kind of question is that? Of course he does. You know, not everybody wants to be made well. You may find a situation where you're dealing with someone and you're trying to help them along, spiritually or, or in other ways, and you find that you're doing more work than they are. At some point, you have to ask them, you've got to put a little bit more effort into this than I am. <laughs> Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made whole? We can pick apart everything that Jesus says and find an application for our lives and for the people we deal with that surround us. It's awesome. Or maybe some are looking for a man to help. In verse 7, the man said, I have no man to put me into the pool. I have no man to help me. Sometimes we're focused on the horizontal. And we're focused too much on each other and human relationships. Instead of horizontal, we need to start going vertical and look to God for the answer. And Jesus showed us that we need only the Son of Man to help. The only question left after Christ's finished work on the cross, where he died to give us everlasting life, is do we want to be made spiritually whole? And that's my question to you this morning. If you don't know the Lord, why did you come here? Did you look at the, the building and the, and the parking lot and say, oh, there's life there, and, and the children's ministry and the teens, and yes, there's a lot happening. But really, that's not as important as the question, do you want to be made whole? And the truth is, we cannot be made whole until we're reconciled to our God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's never too late to trust Jesus for salvation. I want to consider two more points before we move on to the next verse. And I noticed this. He, just as the woman of, at the well, and again, I say this from a societal standpoint, with the woman at the well, he found the worst woman in the whole village with the worst rep reputation and the biggest amount of problems. And he said, that's the one I want to heal. That's the one I want to make an example of. So when he went to the pool at Bethesda, people were, the water was stirred and people were getting up and going into water and being made well. And he saw a guy that he knew was sick for 38 years and he said, that's the guy I want to help. The guy was probably desperate. I have nobody to help me. And furthermore, when the water is stirred, everybody beats me to the punch. I can't get in there quick enough, Lord. So I love that about Jesus is he finds the person that society puts at the bottom of the barrel. You go on missions trips, and there are people eating out of garbage dumps. We don't understand poverty like the rest of the world understands poverty. Right? But he is sometimes there amidst the garbage dump, you know, trying to heal people, trying to save people. So how low do you think you are this morning? I want you to be encouraged by the message that we're reading. The second point is that we're not guaranteed nor do we, deserve, do we deserve, nor are we granted all healing all the time. That's the problem that I have with the prosperity gospel. Because those that have been preaching it for years 
A lot of them are in their graves. And if you look at death, and you look at the dictionary, it says the permanent cessation of vital function. Someone has to get sick in order to die. So the idea that you can always be well, and if, you, if you're not well, it's because you don't have enough faith, is just patently false. It defies biology, it defies logic. Some things we'll deal with, and some things we'll still struggle with. But God is good. He only, and I gotta say this, um, my son has recently have, had some issues with his legs and with, you know, doctors can't figure out what it is. God is good, you know, in the good times and in the bad. We can't just say God is good in the good times, in the bad as well. So keep that in mind. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Now, when we talk about bed, it wasn't like the man and the people at the time were carrying queen-size silly posturepedics on their back, you know what I'm saying? These people weren't well. This was more of a mat. It was more of a, a thin mattress. It was something that if they went to a place and in that climate and they couldn't find accommodations, they could put it down and at least be relatively clean and relatively comfortable. So it, more of a thin mattress or a, a mat. The second point to this after the healing is the interrogation. Man-centered tradition and religion is threatened by a work of the Spirit. You may find yourself amongst religious people that when you talk about God and you're smiling and you're excited that you, you pray to him, they may look at you funny. They may give you a hard time. Believe it or not, if you have a relationship, active relationship with God, some are going to be turned off by that. So man-centered. Listen, not all traditions are bad. A lot of them are based in scripture. But man-centered uh, is often threatened by a work of the spirit. They're at war with each other. These religious leaders, remember, they're spiritual men, supposedly. They didn't say, hey, that's awesome. How did he do it? Did he wave his hand? Did he say abracadabra? How did you get healed? They didn't care. All they could see was the fact that this guy was holding his mat on the Sabbath day. Very sad. When man-made rules triumph over the work of the Spirit in a church, it's either dead or it's about to die. We always have to be open to a work of the Holy Spirit. And in a personal application... We can do the same thing. We can get stale. We can go through the motions. We can make it a routine. Well, I always pray at 9 o'clock this morning. And I always say the same thing. And maybe as you're praying, you're looking at things and doing stuff in the house, and it's just a routine. It becomes stale. You know, There are some that will purposely hold God at a distance. They don't really want him to be Lord over every facet of their lives. And then when a tragedy strikes, they get mad at him because he didn't act quick enough. Or he's not answering their prayers quick enough. It's, you know, a relationship is very simple. You get out of it what you put into it. And it's the same thing with God. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And it's kind of comical. We can almost look at it as, he kind of was throwing Jesus under the bus because he didn't want to be busted for the whole mat carrying thing. I don't know how it went down, but it is funny to think about. The third part out of the four is the warning. The warning. And this is important to all of us. 
believers or non. Never take for granted God's mercy and grace. He said, sin no more. Now, you've heard in different situations that some will quote the woman caught in adultery. And they like to say to Christians, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And that's true. And that's true. Especially towards um, maybe Christian hypocrisy. But oftentimes those who quote that forget the, the end that he says to her before she leaves. He says, sin no more. He's said this several times throughout the scripture and maybe hundreds of times during his ministry. Sin no more lest a worse thing happen to you. Do not take God's mercy for granted. Here's the warning. Sin is the reason that we as humans are in the mess that we're in. Sin is the reason why pastors and elders and preachers have to do funerals. Sometimes we get it backwards. Well, why would God let this happen? We are in this condition, in this fallen condition, because of our sin. All of us collectively and those that went before us. Suffering, pain is not God's design. It wasn't his original plan. It's the consequences of a fallen creation. Now, does this mean that we can be sinless? If you think that I'm sinless, you got another thing coming. All you got to do is talk to my wife in the back and she'll set you straight on that one. But what it means is we can break a lifestyle of sin. You know, I mean, I thought of new and creative ways to sin before I was, uh, I was saved. And now it bothers me when I sin. It, it bothers me to the core. And I, and I ask the Lord for help, certain things. When you become a believer, some things go easy. Oh, you know, that went pretty quickly. And some things we struggle with, our whole Christian existence, right? For those who don't know the Lord, the age of grace will run out. For those who don't know the Lord, your life will run out. You're not guaranteed another 10 years, 10 minutes. I heard about a preacher who was preaching about, you're not guaranteed another second. And somebody actually passed out and fell on the floor. And everybody was like, but they just passed out from the heat. They, they didn't die. So, it's like, wow, that's good preaching. <laughs> don't put off a commitment to Christ. Right? Don't let it be too late. And for those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we break that lifestyle of sin. It's, it's, it's that sin that put him on the cross, and it's grossly disrespectful to our Savior. And that's the way we need to look at it when we sin. Not, A, it's okay, he'll just forgive me, but that it should break our heart as it breaks his heart. Verse 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So the fourth point is the persecution. Jesus answers them. And if someone did it in a, a video, which many have, you could almost see that um, the religious leaders give the guy who's carrying his mat, who was healed a hard time. This probably guy is, is basking in excitement that he can walk again, and they're really putting a wet blanket on this healing. And he's carrying his mat, and he's not really sure what he should do, and he's saying, well, I, there he is, you know. And then the religious leaders see Jesus, and kind of the three of them are together, and the man almost would step back, and now it becomes a tennis match, because it says Jesus answers them. So this becomes a teaching moment to the spiritual leaders who were supposed to be leading the lost sheep of Israel. This is the persecution. And what he does is he transitions this healing 
as he often did, into a teaching on his divinity. We're going to go into the four points of Christ's divinity. The first one is the foundation of his divinity, of equality between the Father and the Son. Now, I do want to kind of clarify a few things before we continue, because we need to know the culture, we need to know the expressions, and then it really opens up the scripture more to us. Number one, when it speaks about the Jews, remember, the gospel writer John is Jewish. Jesus came from the Jewish line. Um, Sometimes it'll say the Greeks. It's just a matter of what would happen back then is there was a lot of open discussion, public discussion, and certain groups of people would come and they would debate each other. So he's just doing a differentiation. It's not people make more of it is than it is. The second point is the Sabbath. Well, what did God design? God worked six days and he took a day off. He could have worked seven, but this is what he wanted to do. It was a day of rest. And he modeled that for us. Now, some of us, um, especially when we're young and we're go-getters, sometimes we work seven days a week. And you know what? Eventually, it'll break you down. It'll break you down physically. You'll get sick more. Your immune system, it'll break you down emotionally. So whenever we follow God's design, we can never go wrong. Now, for us, when we take a break, we also, hopefully, we tie that in with worship. We're taking a rest. We're not so focused on our professions. And we just take a rest and we just think about the Lord. And we worship him, which we should be doing all week, but it gives us more of an opportunity to have that communion with him. So here's the Sabbath. There was a few prescriptions in the Old Testament about it, but not a big deal. What happened was the man-made tradition and religion took over and literally wrote pages. There's hundreds of pages of commentary in the the Mishnah and the different um, rabbinical writings about the Sabbath. Right? They even described to, to what a husband and wife should do in marital relations. I mean, it got nutty. So this became what's something that man turned it into, which it was never designed to be by God. And it ended up worshiping the law that was designed to bring man to worship God. But everything got kind of messed up in the mix. So they were fixated on this tradition in opposition to a relationship. Now, Jesus, they wanted to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath. And he told the man, pick up your bed in opposition to that tradition. Oh, that's all they could see. Now, today, even churches get so involved with tradition that they forget about what the word says, that they forget about a work of the spirit, that they fail to see the miracles. And that's tragic. You would think we would have learned our lesson. The second reason they wanted to kill him is his claim of deity. Now, those who, and I I call them pseudo-Christian groups, P-S-E-U-D-O hyphen, because they're really not Christian. The ones that don't believe in Christ's divinity, and there's a lot of them out there. It's kind of hard when you go through this with them for them not to see that he's claiming divinity, and I'm going to go through some of that with us. He said, my father, right? First person singular. When Jesus even taught the disciples, when you pray, you say, our Father. So there was a huge difference that you may not catch, but culturally, by claiming God as your very own in that type of relationship, you were claiming a special relationship that most people did not have. So you can even see the difference. The disciples were to say, our Father. He said, my Father. So that's the first indicator there. It was a cultural issue. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. 
and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. So the first point is uh, equality between the father and son. The second point is equality of purpose and power within the Godhead. Jesus is trying to explain. Now, when we look at this father-son relationship, it can be confusing because we focus on the temporal. We look at our families. We look at ourselves. It isn't like Father Heaven got together with Mother Nature and had son Jesus. No, absolutely not. There's a relationship there, but it's not as we would think of the relationship. It doesn't mean that the father has testosterone and he could bench the world. You know what I'm saying? We have to get that out of our mindset. It is a spiritual relationship. And it must have been very unique for Jesus to walk the earth some 33 years and be separated for the first time in eternity from the Father physically. So that must have been very interesting to look at. And he's trying to explain to us this relationship. Now let's look at these characteristics. The Son does whatever the Father does. The Son gives life to whomever he will. Let's take an average person and put their name in here and see how that measures up. Um, I think my ushers are awesome people. James over here. If I say James does whatever the father does, you might look at James and say, wow, he's pretty good because I can't do that. I should step down from the pulpit, right? If I say James gives life to whomever he will, oh, what is this James guy? Now, some of you are saying, that sounds blasphemous. This is my point. When you deal with a person who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, As you go through these scriptures, I often do that. Insert your name in there, and you tell me if you feel comfortable saying that. And they're like, no, it kind of gets them confused, because this is what they've been indoctrinated with, but it's not true, right? You can't, I can't insert my name in there. We just can't do it. I mean, we have a lot of special people in this church, but not that special, right? (laughs) 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all honor, or all should honor the Son, just as the honor the, they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The third point is equality of authority between the Father and the Son. Now, let me put my name in there. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to Pastor Joe. Silly. Ridiculous. Um, you certainly don't want me at the controls. You know, if there's a, a shoot with a trap door and, and, you know, there's that handle that pulls back, you know, you want the Lord doing that, not a human, because it's going to be unbiased. Or all should honor Pastor Joe as they honor the Father. All I can say is there's a new sheriff in town, you know. But it, it's ridiculous. It doesn't, you can't apply it to a human being. And I think I can rest my case with some of those few examples about the deity of Christ. Now... The fourth point of divinity, and we're going to cover the rest of it uh, next Sunday, is now that we know Jesus is divine, it's easier to see why salvation comes through Jesus alone. You could take any wonderful pastor in this church who loves the fellowship and hang them on that cross outside, that wooden cross, and they say, I'm going to die for you people. You know what? It would just be a foolish expedition of somebody that died too young because we can't even die. We can't even die for ourselves. It had to be through Christ's sacrifice. Everything else is futile. And some, believe it or not, have tried to do that. They had themselves crucified. Weird. They completely missed the point when it comes to this substitutional sacrifice. 
And next Sunday, we're going to talk as well about the five witnesses to Christ's divinity. So what do we see here? We started with a man and others who were severely disabled and sick. Romans 5 tells us that all death and sickness can be traced back to sin and rebellion of mankind. Christ came to save this man from a life fraught with difficulty through a physical healing. As with typical Jesus style, however, he wanted, more importantly, to save the man's soul. And as we get to the rest of it, believe it or not, they gave him so much trouble, the religious leaders, he wanted to save them too, and we'll read about that. And of course, he still desires to save souls today. Jesus also used the healing to segue into a teaching about his divinity. divinity. For what reason? For the basis of understanding why we should believe that his death on the cross accomplished anything at all. We need to understand that. And also, that we should believe that his finished work on the cross is the only way that mankind can come to salvation. From a worldly perspective, what do we get caught up in? The here and now, what we see all the time. Somebody's got cancer, somebody's sick. Um, I, you know, I have an ear infection, whatever the case may be. We get focused on the temporal, and we get focused on the physical healing, but the truth is, saving of one's soul is far more valuable than a temporary relief physically. So I just would urge you and, and have you to consider, as you go through the scripture, if you don't know the Lord, that you really need to consider that today before you leave this building. And we'll give you that opportunity to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we take the first half of this chapter, we see um, just your love and your mercy.